Hello and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley. Thanks for joining us. Quite a bit to unpack in this episode. Joe Manchin, of all people, agrees to a deal on climate change. Leaked documents show U.S. power companies have spent millions to protect their profits and fight clean energy. Remember this the next time you see some shill on a TV debate arguing against electric cars or renewable energy. African countries are being pushed to take sides in the Ukraine war. Knuckle-dragging despot Viktor Orban is set to address the Conservative Political Action Committee conference this week. Did I mention he said something so racist one of his inner circle quit? The U.S. has offered a deal that would free Brittany Grenier and another American. And so, off we go. As they say in parts of New York City, at least some parts of New York City, who would have thunk it? Has it only been a week since everyone thought a climate change deal in Congress was dead, killed by one West Virginia Senator, Joe Manchin? Yet now, a deal has been reached to the tune of $369 billion of climate and tax legislation. It should be voted on this week. So what happened? Did Joe Manchin suddenly get, a a get an attack of conscience? Probably not. Did sweltering summertime temperatures make him see the light? It certainly didn't sway Republican senators, who remained united in their opposition to the bill. It's worth exploring what the bill would do and not do. This could explain why the GOP doesn't want to see it pass. It provides $30 billion in incentives for companies to build solar panels, wind turbines, and other forms of renewable energy. An important part of the bill is $60 billion to mitigate the burden of pollution on low-income and communities of color. Most importantly, it thrusts the U.S. back into the forefront of fighting climate change. You should expect to hear all manner of pushback from defenders of the status quo, that electric cars don't really cut pollution, that fighting inflation is more important than climate change. That was Manchin's line until just the other day. Blah, 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 blah. Don't believe any of it. In the end, Manchin did in fact get his pound of flesh in exchange for his support. The bill would mandate new leases for oil drilling in the Gulf of Mexico and Alaska's Cook Inlet, something environmental groups had strenuously opposed and President Biden had promised to halt as a candidate for the White House. As part of the agreement, Mr. Manchin said he had also secured a commitment from both Mr. Biden and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi that Congress would approve a separate measure to address the permitting of energy infrastructure, potentially including natural gas pipelines, before the end of the fiscal year on September 30th. These pair of concessions have caused some environmental groups to oppose the entire bill. That would, in my opinion, be penny-wise and pound foolish at this point. The world is watching how the U.S. handles its climate change business. Even with some of the provisions in this bill, it will take a mammoth effort throughout the planet to reach the goal of limiting climate change to 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit by the end of the decade. It may not be perfect, but it does tick a lot of boxes. And I don't know, I don't profess to know because it's above my pay grade, what caused Joe Manchin to switch gears? What caused Joe Manchin to turn around and say, you know, maybe we need to do this? And it's ironic that in the days after he decided to make this deal, 
his neighbors in Kentucky ended up having traumatic flash floods that killed 25 people. And some people say that may be down to climate change as well. Now to the issue of the power companies Joe Manchin has been running interference for. We all know, I think, that politics is a dirty business, and so is the protection of corporate profits. A recent article in the Guardian newspaper says energy companies have been paying large amounts to one particular consulting firm to keep their profits while at the same time fighting against clean energy. The firm, Matrix LLC, has been hard at work in several southern states doing just that. Documents have been leaked as a result of a feud at the top of the firm. This casts a light on the often shadowy world of influence peddling and the lengths firms like Matrix will go to politically undercut those fighting climate change. In Florida, for example, they allegedly paid a $40,000 bribe to get a candidate to run against the state senator who supported the fight against climate change. Turns out the stealth candidate had the same last name as the climate warrior. Suffice to say, the senator who opposed the energy company lost his seat. This, by the way, is hardly unique. Happens a lot of times across America where some interest or another, it doesn't have to be the power company, it might not be, uh, it might be a political family, a political group, whoever, but they run somebody with the same last name as somebody they try to knock off uh, or remove from a a particular political office, an incumbent. And the two people with the same last name split the vote and then allow somebody else, the person they really wanted to elect, to win. Now, it also turns out that Matrix had a journalist spied on who had written critically about their client, Florida Power and Light. As mentioned earlier, when you see social media that tells you people fighting for clean energy are the problem, not the solution, ask yourself who paid to put them there. It might be Matrix, one of their affiliated companies, or the energy companies themselves. After all, it's their pipeline to profit that is at risk from fighting climate change. And some, not all, but some, are willing to play serious dirty tricks to earn their payday. They've even gone as far as allegedly taking control of a news outlet and firing reporters who don't back the party line. One could easily look at allegations in this Guardian article and conclude both ordinary people and climate advocates even do not stand a chance. One way to balance the scales is to call out big energy corruption like this Guardian, uh, Guardian piece does. The other, which I've talked about before, is to encourage critical thinking. That's right, encourage critical thinking. That is, getting your information from a variety of sources and asking questions based on your own analysis of what you read, see, and hear. It really does work, you know. Up next, African countries are being pushed to take sides in the Russia-Ukraine war. Which side will most of the continent be on? This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, stay tuned to The Intersection with Mark Riley.
I'd like to know what you think. Leave a comment on my Facebook page or you can email me at mark at markreillymedia.com. Welcome back to the intersection. The continent of Africa has become embroiled in the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Not just one country, the whole of Africa. Consider for a moment French President Emmanuel Macron visiting Cameroon and calling out the continent for what he calls hypocrisy. Why? Because not enough of them called the conflict a war. Maybe it's me, but Macron has some crust here. Why should he upbraid a continent? Because not every country agrees with Europe's definition of war. Anyway, around the same time, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov also visited the continent and praised the African countries for not joining in sanctions against his country. The plain facts are these. Of Africa's 54 states, 27 abstained from a General Assembly vote to condemn the Russian invasion back in March. On the other side of the coin, all three of the continent's members on the UN Security Council voted to end the war. That measure, of course, was vetoed by Russia. When it comes to relations between Africa, the West, and Russia, as they say in Facebook bios, it's complicated. France, along with other Western European countries, has a long history of colonialism on the African continent. Many on that same continent have not forgotten that. Russia, on the other hand, has assisted some of those same countries during the Cold War, for better or for worse. The issue now, however, is food. The Russian blockade on Black Sea ports has had a direct impact on African countries, many African countries. Russian mercenary activity in the form of the Wagner Group hasn't helped matters much either from the perspective of Africa as it sees Russia. So it appears Africa is being whipsawed between competing forces that both offer carrots and sticks. The real issue is whether the African Union, the continent's supposed guiding light, can steer a neutral course for the benefit of the people of the continent. One thing is certain. Berating Africans over terminology won't work in any way, shape, or form. And I, I would think, you know, you would think, I would think, that Europe would understand that. Even if Russia didn't, a more enlightened policy toward Africa on the part of Europe, their former colonizers, I might add, might get them further than accusing them of hypocrisy because they didn't call the Russian-Ukraine conflict a war. And by the way, Macron was not completely right about that either. So the fact of the matter is, at some point, there has to be some kind of rapprochement that does not end up putting Africa in the middle. You see, because the Russians can, they say they won't, but they can use food as a weapon, whether it be in Africa or any place else on the planet that depends on Ukrainian grain in particular to feed their populations. And plenty of countries in Africa, in fact, do. Up next, what would possess the Conservative Political Action Conference to invite Hungarian strongman Viktor Orban to address their August body, especially after he said something so racist 
one of his right-hand people quit in disgust. This is The Intersection. It's Mark Riley with The Intersection of Politics and Culture. Stay tuned. Welcome back to The Intersection. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban will never be confused with an enlightened human being. He's become a darling of the American right with fawning interviews with the likes of Tucker Carlson and others. He's also been invited to be a featured speaker at this week's Conservative Political Action Conference in Texas. Where else? Orban has become wildly popular with the right for his throwback views on immigration. Yet on July 23rd, he went too far for even one of his longtime advisors. Here is a direct quote about modern-day Europe. Modern-day Europe. Quote, one half is a world where Europeans and non-European peoples live together. These countries are no longer nations. They are nothing more than a conglomeration of peoples. End quote. And then the coup de grace. Quote, we are willing to mix with one another, but we do not want to become peoples of mixed race, end quote. Sound familiar? It did to his advisor, Zuza Hegedus. She quit and said Orban's words sounded to her, quote, like a pure Nazi speech worthy of Goebbels, end quote. This is the kind of person CPAC regulars like Donald Trump, Tucker Carlson, Ted Cruz and others find common cause with. When I called them a knuckle-dragging racist at the top of this podcast, that would be the reason why. He underpins his racism and xenophobia with references fought as far back as the 8th century. I don't know if that means he actually wants to take the world back to the 8th century, but that's what he quotes. Take him at his face. If this is who he says he is, that is who he is. CPAC is more than willing to have him in their midst, and in fact had a previous conference in Budapest, the capital of Hungary. It's now time to ask a legitimate question. Is this where the American right is actually headed? It would seem so. Actually, they may already be there. Right-wing xenophobia is driven by one thing, in my judgment. That's fear. Fear of loss. Loss of privilege. Loss of supremacy. Loss of identity. That's why there's such common cause with people like Viktor Orban. People with sense will hopefully see through all of them. And finally, more vanishing texts from around the January 6th insurrection. And this time, it's not the Secret Service. If vanishing Secret Service texts around January 6th isn't bad enough, now it's further up the food chain. Texts for Donald Trump's acting Homeland Security Director Chad Wolf and acting Deputy Secretary Ken Cuccinelli have turned up missing. Combined with the vanishing Secret Service texts, some people might conclude deliberate obstruction. We've yet to see whether Wolf's or Cuccinelli's texts can be recovered. 
The official line is that the texts vanished because of a phone reset. We'll see if that satisfies Congressman Benny Thompson at all on the committee, the January 6th committee, the people who are investigating all this. Uh, when it comes to Betty Thompson, I'm not at all sure that this is going to satisfy him. This is, as I said in the previous episode, a dog ate my homework kind of defense. And why in a phone reset would there be the vanishing of certain texts in and around January 6, 2021? Why not before that? Why not after that? Why around that particular crucial time? And as to whether or not this would satisfy Benny Thompson, my answer would be probably, probably not. You never know. Maybe it will satisfy some. But my guess would be that it's not going to satisfy this committee and that they're going to start calling in the Chad Wolfs and the Ken Cuccinellis and others to get to the bottom of where those texts went and why they are, at this point, not recoverable, at least on the part of the Secret Service. And finally, before we leave you, a little bit of good news. American Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has announced that he has offered the Russians a deal that would have the effect of freeing Brittany Grenier, who's been in Russian custody for some time now, and one other person. And it would be a wonderful thing if that happens. Certainly, campaigners on her behalf have been arguing and pleading with the American government to take a firm stand. Grenier remains in custody because the Russians say that she was possessing some type of cannabis oil in violation of their laws while she was traveling through Russia. Keep in mind that she plays for a Russian basketball team. Now, there are a lot of people who say Brittany Grenier's critical political views of the United States means she might as well just stay in a Russian prison and rot. Actually, that philosophy, that take is rot. People have the right to criticize their own government. And isn't it interesting that some of the same people who will decry the Russians invading Ukraine are so quick to believe that the Russians actually had a legitimate reason to detain and jail Brittany Grenier. I find that utterly fascinating, but you know, in the world of right-wing thinking, it happens all the time. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.